Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Venry Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we have the amazing privilege of chatting to Neil Connell. Um, not only has Neil been the president of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons but we get the chance to chat about his amazing veterinary career and some of the really significant personal and professional challenges that he's faced as well. Neil's also been an amazing voice for veterinary nurses and also speaking out for diversity and equality within our profession. We're also really pleased to be joined again by Sophie from Zoetis. In our clinical segment this week, we're going to be talking about all things dermatology again, but particularly focusing on communication in the dermatology consultation. Okay, right, Neil, thanks so much for joining us um, on the podcast. It really is a, an honour. Um, I wanted to start just from a little bit of context from my point of view was that when I first graduated, um, I rocked up to the PDSA in the East End of Glasgow two days after my graduation, which was on the Friday. And actually, my very first day of working as an actual vet was in the same building as you. So um, that feels to me like a slightly full circle moment. So my veterinary career started um, with the great influence that is you. I wondered if you would mind sort of telling people um, who are listening just a little bit about how your uh, veterinary journey started. Well, I remember that. I remember you uh, <laughs> working there, Scott. I must say it, and, and I, knew, I knew straight away you would go far. <laughs> you have to say that because we're no, being recorded. No, no, it worked. It's the truth. It's the absolute truth. I guess, I guess, actually, I suppose in a way, it's been a kind of um, fairly interesting kind of zigzag um, pathway for me. And um, some of it should have been a bit strange, but um, do you know what? It's, it's all kind of worked out well. So, obviously, I qualified from Glasgow 1982, um, a long time ago. And I started off in um, my first job was a, in mixed practice in Fife. I was given I was a, I was a, a contract for a year um, because the the boss's son who was a vet was going to work in Tasmania for a year, but he ended up actually staying there forever. So I, I stayed I stayed for just under two years, and um, I enjoyed it. But um, randomly, I, I decided you know I wanted a change of scene, and we we so it was my wife and I. And uh, we had a, a young son then, um, and and it was, no, it was an interesting time actually that that practice because you know driving about farms, especially it was a really snowy uh, winter with Nick Kershaw in the radio, um, and and Colette was an unpaid receptionist, an out of hours receptionist. So, um, but yes, yeah, so I randomly actually applied for a job with the PDSA in London. And it was completely random. I mean, I had done EMS or sorry, IMR at um, Glasgow Shamrock Street um, as a student. So, so I went down to London, and and it was amazing. It was people that were the same age as me, but they were whoa, they were way ahead of me when it came to you know what the surgical experience and everything. It was so busy, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved the teamwork. Um, and I, 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 although we're really, really busy, it was it was a good laugh. Um, so I think I always think that's something. Um, you know, having fun is important, and trying not to take things too seriously. So yeah, so PDSA in London for that was yeah, just just under two years there, and then I came back to Glasgow to work at Shamrock Street for five years. Um, 
and that 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 was incredibly busy that probably was a kind of that was my defining part of career it was it was it was it was at the time i remember saying it was like a combination of the uh, hill street blues and mash of course these are references that the young people probably wouldn't get um but it was it was it was completely insane and i, I thoroughly enjoyed it um and I also did while i worked at the pdsc I, I did some um locums as well so i ended up being senior vet at east glasgow and i was senior vet for 17 years i think um yeah so and it was great so it was all going so it's, obviously we were quite happy colette and i with three children at that point it was all looking good um and then obviously then came along the, the wee life changer when i went I, I kind of started losing the use of my legs in 2003 and um, ended up with um, ms um can i can i just ask about that so that that's a uh, i suppose when do you when when that sort of starts happening to you so there's obviously something physically that's changing what what was the point where you thought oh actually hold on there's maybe something quite significant going on here rather than just a wee whatever that i'm going to ignore right i did ignore it a little bit um i have to say because mm. i did um i got um various kind of bits of numbness and my left hand was actually quite numb for a while went to the gp once about that and didn't go back um, so I did kind of ignore the, the warning signs and they just kind of plowed on. So I like think just don't really kind of worry about those kind of things until the September weekend when I kind of more or less lost the use of my legs. And um, so I was, I was admitted to a hospital, put on um, a thousand milligrams of DEX intravenously for three days. Nice. I was up. <laughs> I was that'll sort you flying. I had visions. It was it was amazing, um, but and it was that 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 really was. I can remember that also clearly. I can also remember in the hospital there was some poor soul in uh, next door coughing really 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 horribly all through the night. And I did ask the nurse what what was wrong mm -hmm. with that that person, and she said, "Oh, it's someone who has throat cancer." And right then, I knew, do you know what? There's always someone worse off than yourself. Always. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to, and then I, I literally did, you know, because I'd got, got these crutches, and I'm going to have a go at trying to walk down the corridor mm -hmm. um, and, and try to make an effort and make a go of this. Um, and, you know, and it's all kind of worked out all right, really. But you didn't, so you did continue to work as a, as a practicing yeah. in-clinic vet yeah. for... How how long did you do that? Another another six years. I'm very proud of that. Actually, I managed. Funny thing is, it's it's a really interesting situation because you don't want to let the team down. You don't want to be holding everybody back. Of course, it's a very very busy, very physical job. Um, and I must admit, I did I did struggle. Um, and I was on various medications and what have you. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so six years, and obviously there was there was adjustments eventually made. Because I, I, I couldn't do the out of hours work anymore, because I, I probably wasn't safe enough to be left on my own, um, <laughs> and um, and obviously I mean I, I, I mean I did a lot of surgery and I did orthopedics and what have you, and that, that all had to stop. Um, so I, I only did kind of minor ops until eventually I think it was I think I was forty nine, and I, I I had that was that was it. I had to actually end my clinical career at that point. And I was, I was pretty down, actually, at that stage. Yeah. I, I suppose when you've been working at the level you've been working at, especially, 
how busy you'll have been throughout almost well throughout your whole career that can't be that that must there, there must be sadness with that when you have to finally say i can't do this anymore well yes i have to i was very i was very low i have to mm. say because it, because two things i mean i was still relatively young and obviously I had a family to look after and i i, I could just see it all just disappear down the drain um so and and the future did look very very dark so i i, I can i suppose that in fairness i think it probably wasn't quite a dark place for a while and i didn't honestly really relish spending the rest of my life playing the playstation even <laughs> even though i was quite good at call of duty and do you still play the playstation a bit now do you know actually i I don't um, because okay. I'm too, You're too busy. busy. You do exactly. So there you go. You see. I know. I know. So you know, clinical work ends. Did you have a Did you have a plan? Did you think, apart from the PlayStation, did you think I've I've got this other stuff that I'm gonna? Interesting. Well, well, the thing is, funnily enough, in my um, in my whole career, I've never had a plan of any description, and I think that's actually helped me. And I've I've not had any expectations, but. I did realize that I didn't want to do nothing. Um, so, so at the time, what I did was actually looked about to see if there was something I could do, even on a voluntary basis. And I, end, I ended up doing some voluntary work at um, Stop Hill Hospital in Glasgow oh, yeah. and with their patient information center. And, you know, it was actually really, really good because I think at the time, thinking back, when they realized it's someone that kind of had some kind of... Um, that they could kind of work within the NHS and, and, and kind of knew what they were talking about. They thought it was relatively useful. So I ended up being in, in a couple of committees and things and, and just talking to people. And it actually really, really helped my confidence at that point because mm -hmm. I felt I was, I was mince. That was it. Um, so, um, so it did really, really help. And, um, you know, so it, I, I'm very, very grateful for that. It was, just, it, it was, it was really good. How did you kind of then find your way back? Not find your way back, not that you ever went away, but how did you then navigate to towards kind of this this RCVS journey that you're on, still on, just the journey? Right, the journey. <laughs> some people hate That's that. It. Oh, God, some people yeah, hate that. Yeah. Anyway, let's call it a journey. <laughs> so how did you... How did you a rocky road. <laughs> how did you get on that? <laughs> a rocky road, indeed. How did you find yourself on that rocky road? Well, it started because, I mean, it, it's it's funny. Things just suddenly um, happen, I think, just randomly and just out of nowhere, really. Um, there was a, a veterinary nurse that I worked with, Lizanne, with the PDSA, and she's now part of the heads up the clinical skills team at Glasgow Vet School. And she actually sent me a text one day and said, do you fancy, do you fancy just helping out at one of the, it was a, a seminar for first years on uh, professionalism. And I thought, oh, I thought, <laughs> random. This, I, I, have they got the wrong guy? I know, exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't have been the first person to, to have thought of. And I thought, actually, it was quite intimidating. I thought, you're going along to talk to first years about for, for professionalism. And then when I got there, I thought, first of all, hang on. Well, I did think, hang on, when you think about it seriously, just a few weeks ago, they were actually at school. So how intimidating could that be? But in actual fact, that wasn't the case actually either, because obviously you get a lot of, um, you know, uh, non-UK students as well. So you've got Americans and things. So, um, do you know, I, I, 
it might have been the worst experience of their lives that day, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and so I ended up doing a wee bit more. I'd hurt, I'd hurt work for the vet school, sometimes teaching. I helped a volunteer to do some of the uh, common skills exercises. I do the portfolio assessments. I, I, the last few years I've done the OSCEs and the DOPS. Um, people know what those acronyms mean, if I can remember. Objective Structure Clinical Examinations and Directly Observed Procedural Skills. But I love working with students. I think it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's an absolute yeah. honor for me. So it was doing all that. And, it, and, and so I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it was difficult and physically challenging for me because of the MS, but nothing that you do that's worthwhile is necessarily easy. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The RCVS bit, again, by pure chance, again, was our, our RCVS regional question time outside Glasgow. Um, and uh, I, I went along to it and I, I heard the, the CEO at that point talking about changes. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give that a go. I'll throw my hat in the ring and try to be elected. I, had, I hadn't ever really thought of Royal College before then in my entire career. I wasn't one of these people that was scared of RCVS or concerned. I mean, sometimes when I did it out of hours at four o'clock in the morning, I might think of them randomly and think it might be people that maybe sometimes would you know, be looking at you, how you were behaving, you know, where you're doing your best. But you know, it, was, it was never a thing, but I just thought just it was a notion. It just shows you that just a notion can take you quite far. And do you still, are you still involved in student stuff now? Do you still yes. keep up Did yeah. you doing yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously with the COVID and um, so it's not so much. And, and certainly I have to say, I did take a year out if you like being president when I was RCVS president mm-hmm. because it was just so, so busy. Uh, but at the moment I'm actually assessing uh, fourth year portfolios. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it as well because you get a really great insight into what they're doing, what they've achieved. And obviously they're very, very pertinent as well because they're talking yeah. about EMS and COVID and, and dealing yeah. with things like that. And, and it's yeah. an honor for me to be involved. Yeah, and it's a, it's a hard time for them. And I really said that a couple of, you know, we were saying that actually a couple of things I wanted to mention. I don't, do you know Laura Kidd? I was, we were speaking to yes. Laura Kidd. Was, yeah. yeah. Yes. Two things that you've said have really kind of, you know, stuck out for me. We were, we were talking about the challenges of, of, of teaching during coronavirus, but also just the, the really feeling for the students and the fact that they weren't maybe getting quite the student experience they thought. Funnily enough, Laura also made a comment about only ever really planning two weeks in advance and not really knowing what was going to happen. And I, that really rung true with what you were saying. And maybe, and I said to her at the time, maybe that's the better way to be. I'm overthinking like, what? never mind five-year plans. Let's just have five-minute plans. Mm. Let's just think <laughs> about what we're doing uh, for the next five minutes. So you said, obviously great things are born out of a wee notion one day to do whatever. But I think we have to kind of pay some tribute to the fact that this wee notion turned into obviously quite a cool thing where you became president of the RCVS. And I actually remember, and you maybe won't, but I remember speaking to you at a CPD evening. um, And, you know, I was, I was talking about some, I don't know, some crap about vomiting or something. And it was very kind of you to turn up. But um, very good lecture. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, but I was talking to you about what you were doing and you were sort of saying that you were doing this with the RCVS and then actually next year or, or the year after that would mean you were president. And I was like, what? Just, sorry, so you're 
you're going to be the president of the RCBS. And you said it in such a sort of casual way. And I was like, is that not quite, is that not quite a big deal? Like, I felt like that was quite a big thing. So how do you then, how does that notion turn into being like a, our version of Barack Obama? Sort of same level. No, that's, I, I don't think so. I don't, don't think so, Scott. But it's very kind of you to say that. It just shows you'll say anything. Yeah. Well, I, I, at least I chose Obama and yeah, not Trump. Right? That, so, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's no very problem. kind of you. No, I mean, the, so this, the, the, it, it's fantastic. Um, because once once you get there, um, and and obviously. I mean, I will say when there's a lot of talk sometimes about imposter syndrome, and so yes, I was uh, that. I'm, I'm no different from everybody else. I was the biggest imposter ever. And what am I actually doing here? And um, so, but you work with members on council, and you work with the staff, and you work with the, the 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 team and everything. It's fantastic. So really, really um, rewarding. And do you know these things just just happen really in a, in a way you, because you obviously you want you want to um make a contribution and you want to do your best and the, the one thing i i certainly have i guess um i mean as i said i do the, the ad work ad hoc work for glasgow but but i i do have the time so um so and i just i've just found the whole thing very very rewarding um and so it just mm -hmm. it just just goes on. And one of the things I I wanted to pick out a couple of things. Um, I've been stalking you a bit on YouTube, um, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, and actually, well, one of the things, obviously, I suppose, um, you know, we we've been connected for a number of years in some way, and so I, I'm kind of aware of of things on social media. What I loved was a lot of your kind of uh, narrative about your journeys to London. And there was one video I was watching and you were you were going along Whitehall and I've actually had to write it down. I've had to write it down. So this is you said that um, you said that you felt like an ordinary vet doing extraordinary things as you kind of, you know, went along Whitehall past the House of Parliament or whatever. I don't know if you can elaborate a little bit on that. I love that phrase. I'm an, I'm an ordinary vet doing extraordinary things. I don't know if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Well, but that that that, that is essentially it and because the thing is because who could ever have imagined i i couldn't have imagined me in this situation and and just so, so the last last few years you find yourselves in you know in the house of lords you find yourself in parliament talking to people um and having these conversations and, and working with people and just finding yourself in in the most extraordinary situations and the fact is as as president, I was mainly living in London, right. and with all the challenges, obviously, with all the you know, obviously, because the the MS, um, you know, obviously throws its things in as well. You know, obviously, you know, sort of passenger assistance and mm -hmm. trains and power chair and what have you. Um, mm -hmm. So it just completely fills up your whole life. And I have to say, there's I've just it's been so rewarding, and I, I've enjoyed everything. Yeah, so. It's it's random. I think if you take stock of what you're doing, um, as I said, I don't I don't have expectations. I don't look to the future. But sometimes, if you actually take stock and actually appreciate the situation you're in, and and, and that that when you said that about uh, going to Long Whitehall, every time because I mean I go in my power chair from Euston Station to um, Belgravia House. It's about three miles. 
to go down Tottenham Court Road, Charing Cross Road, down Whitehall, past the House of the Parliament, and just, just think, this is amazing. And just, uh, Isn't that cool? and just all the yeah. different people, it's all so diverse, and just it's all happening. And yeah. uh, walking past famous people, saying, hello, there's John Malkovich, or yeah. hello, there's you know, various people. It's, 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 it's fantastic. But I think, you're, yeah, I think you're right. And actually, to be honest with you, I, I, you know, we last time we were in London, God, a long time ago now with everything. But, you know, we'd gone down to see the Harry Potter shows and we went with, you know, with another vet friend. And the thing is, I, I, th- I always think that too. Like you just walk along and think, what a cool place this is, you know, and it's got such an energy about it. And I love that, you know, that kind of, di- like you said, that kind of d- diversity within a city. It really is. um, Yes, very cool. Um, I wanted to, just talking about diversity, actually, I, I wanted to kind of pick up on another couple of things. Um, I, I don't know, you know, there's there's lots of different themes, obviously, within the veterinary profession. And one of the things that I felt came across, and you can obviously absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, I, I really loved the focus that you had on veterinary nurses. And I think you really, I honestly feel that you really did bring them as they should be to the fore. Um but I also felt that, um, and this work obviously continues, but but I felt that there was a, a strong nod from you to kind of um, uh, diversity, inclus- inclusion, equality. You know, so I don't know if you meant for all of that to come through, but I really felt that that was, that came through with your presidency, if that's a good thing or not. I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't know if, if, would you agree with that? Is that? Were there certain things that you tried to kind of, I suppose, focus on or or highlight? Well, that's very kind of you to say all that because that's that's absolutely true. Because I have to say, I've always, always been inspired and um, always um, recognised the, the great work that uh, our uh, RVNs do, veterinary nurses, always. And and I always say to students that um, they they are the best friends they can have when they qualify, um, because because they they're, they're so great and it's been part of that team. Uh, so I, I've always been. Um, very very vocal about that and I was very very proud to be vice chair of the VN council um, for a while um, so they're absolutely integral to everything we do and um, and I think it's it's everybody has to remember that and obviously because we're, we're not just talking about our veterinary profession but we're talking about professions the veterinary and nursing professions so I, I I will always be an advocate for them, and um, I think that they, they've done so well, um, and they're just powering ahead. Regarding diversity and inclusion, I mean I'm I'm chair of the diversity inclusion working group, and that's something that's always been close to my heart. I have to say, um, and it's and it's there's a positive side of it as well because if 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 you don't if you don't subscribe to that, definitely we're definitely missing out. Obviously, it's the, the the other side of it, the, the, the darker side, where people, obviously, you know, the the business about you know racism and and you know, you've grown up in West Scotland, I guess, you know, because we're exposed to that racism, sectarianism, and, mm-hmm. and all sorts mm-hmm. of intolerance. Um, mm-hmm. So I I just think it's it's extremely important, and I'm I'm so chuffed to be chair of the diversity and inclusion working group. I think it's it's true, isn't it? Because I think we. You know, we, when I say you, you grow up in a world, I certainly have, where you think things are kind of, things are good and you don't, and, and you do believe that people are good and there is there is equality and there is inclusivity and, and diversity. But actually, you don't have to look very far to see that that's not always true at all, that, you know, yeah. uh, and really within, 
you know, and whether it's to do with um to do with, you know, sexuality or gender or the colour of your skin or, you know, we still have the committee for diversity and equality for a reason because we still are not quite at the point that we need to be well not quite but we, we're not at the point I suppose we need to be with that sort of stuff so no that that discussion is still really uh really important I think um so obviously then this other thing happened um with coronavirus <laughs> which was a sh- which was a shame um but that that obviously happened during your tenure so that's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? Well, it was a little bit, but then, <laughs> but to be fair, that's that's been the same for the whole world. Um, and I just, and I really, really, really do feel for all the people, uh, all, and especially in our Bentley world, all the people who have actually had, had all sorts of hardships because of this, um, and all the things they've missed out. I'm mean, concerned that the students are having a really hard time, uh, although the vet schools are doing a fantastic job doing what they can to mitigate, you know, you know, problems and, and, um, and just, the, and the, the, all, the, all our vets and nurses out there working, you know, in all the, the situations that they're in, whether it's general practice, specialist practice, government work and pathology everywhere. I mean, they're just, they're just doing a fantastic job. But this is, is, it's been a, a lost year really. Um, and just, and even, you know, just when I see, it, as I said, I came home from London one Friday and, and never went back. Um, but then I, I feel um, there's there's Mendisa, our this fantastic, our new mm. fantastic uh, president, and you know at the moment she's never actually worn the actual chain. She's never sat in the big oh. big chair, uh, but she's doing a fantastic job. But but you know it's yeah. it's like every everybody's missing out. So hope, hopefully it's temporary. I think that's true, and and you know, and then you could argue that you know, I I suppose you know we can still do part of our jobs from a distance, but I think it's the missing out thing because it goes back to because because although you know because sitting in the chair that's that's a that's a you know there's there's a, that's special wearing the chain is special or you know and I, and I think as much as obviously like you said there are there are bigger problems but it's still there's there's you're missing out on something there it's the same with the students when I, you know I'm actually doing some some local work at Glasgow Uni the small animal hostel just now as well uh, well not uh, yeah so and um and I was talking to the students their graduation is going to be virtual in June or where, whenever it is and although you know you still graduate but it's not the same as putting on that well I don't know what colours you are putting on our, our Harry Potter hoods and all that kind of stuff uh, you know we had our uh, Edinburgh the vet school colours are the same as Gryffindor <laughs> so that was really important um, but uh, you know it's not it's never going to be quite this the same really um, so yeah so it's, it, it is a, I like that it's a kind of there is a, a lost element to this year and hopefully but hopefully we're kind of coming out of that have you had your vaccine? I've had the first dose um, oh, just, okay. just um about just over a week ago. And did you feel like death? Are you okay? No, no, no. It was, um, it was, it, it, very, very, I, I think I just felt a little bit tired for a day or two. But I think yeah. what, what I felt, and I think what, what I'm actually seeing other people commenting, is the absolute excitement of it, the, the, yes. the, the occasion of it. Yeah. You're actually getting yeah. this. And it's almost like a heart back to the, the old days when, you know, things like smallpox vaccines were, were revolutionary. And you know, it's yeah. really, it, it's so important to get this done, and and oh, yeah. I mean, you actually see the NHS working like that. It was it was like a military operation, but with a really mm-hmm. good vibe, 
um, and right. everybody was really, really pleasant. Uh, so it was yeah. a very positive experience. Oh no, that's great. You know, my mum, my mum got it, and she literally phoned like elated and wanted to like honestly I've never mm-hmm. had her she's never been so excited about something in her life and so proud and so yeah just an, a really amazing thing really so if you obviously we talked there's lots of challenges if you had to I always hate to say you have to choose one but you have to choose one <laughs> so what would you say was the most challenging thing about your uh, year as as the president is there one thing that kind of stuck out I suppose coronavirus I don't know you know what what sticks out as a challenge? Coronavirus. Coronavirus, obviously, is a challenge. Obviously, in European exit is another mm-hmm. thing. Um, the, the, the only thing is, John, I don't know how, how candid you want me to be. I, do you know this whole, the, the council thing? I guess the challenges I found the most um, difficult to deal with, funnily enough, were actually kind of personal challenges. Um, so I don't know if that's right. if that's something you're interested. In. I'm quite happy of to course, talk about no. the veterinary stuff. No, no, of course, no, no, absolutely. I think, yeah, it, whatever you those, yeah, those personal challenges, yeah. absolutely. I mean, obviously, the, the the I guess the challenge of getting about and getting and meeting people is absolutely amazing. But obviously, the the business with the MS carry on with power chairs and crutches and assisted travel. And um, obviously, for instance, something like loading power chair into the car at three o'clock in the morning outside Central Station, that can actually be quite interesting, to be honest, when you're exhausted, when the train's been late coming home, that kind of yeah. thing. And and it's all the other challenges. I think, I suppose, if I'd be candid, um, while I was on council, you're having to do your very, very best for that. But um I suppose the one thing is obviously Colette, my wife had pancreatic cancer. And with yes. so we went through that with the chemotherapy, the chemo radiation treatments, and um, then she had that massive operation, the Whipple procedure. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. all while I was in council. So I did, and ironically, me then becoming the carer when I was a dead loss. Um, so and and doing that, that that was a, a dark time. But Colette was amazing, mm-hmm. and I'm glad to say she's a survivor. So she's back to health. Obviously, she was she was very ill. Um, but has is fully mm-hmm. recovered now from that? Is she? She's yes, yeah. That's that's five years since her surgery. Oh so that's quite amazing, and that that's relatively unusual, I have to say. Um, she obviously felt there was more work to be done doing my head in so sure but i was gonna say I, I think she probably just i can't leave him in his own uh, like that would be a disaster he can't be trusted absolutely he's literally not to be left yeah so i suppose that's to, to to have you both in a situation where health is not mm. maybe at it's premium mm. and i suppose you <laughs> imagine you both sitting looking at each other going what are we what do we do to deserve this situation? <laughs> you know, no, do you know, never actually. Right. I think I think we both have very positive attitudes, and you just really have to trudge on. And I actually fight in a way, as I said, if I, if I want to be candid, it probably got actually worse um, because the, the you know while this is all going on, um, and again this is all while I was in council as well. The other thing is my, my mother had severe dementia, and if that wasn't been bad enough, she was actually being abused by a family member. Um, financially, physically, and psychologically, and a situation that was so bad that when I actually met one of the North Lanarkshire social work directors later, they told me that our this case was actually used as a training case oh because God. of the complex issues of abuse that were uncovered. 
So I was having in between times having to deal with social workers, the police court appearances to obtain contested guardianship. Um, my mum was the attempted abduction from a care home. Um, and it was all completely mad. And ironically, after Colette recovered from pancreatic cancer, my mother died of pancreatic cancer oh my God. Um, within, within uh, three weeks. And then, if, make it even worse, four weeks later, I found my sister sadly dead. Um, because she was she was the alcoholic, she was the one that was sadly having very very difficult situations. So, um, do you know it's it's been completely mad. Life is mad. The, so this was all, but this was all going. So this is all going on at the one time, like literally. Yeah, yeah at the same time in the background, which and <laughs> every everybody has this. This is the thing, and I'm I have to say, especially with the MS, um, I'm constantly humbled by the number of people out there, veterinary surgeons and veterinary nurses who are working through problems and especially physical health mm. problems and just getting on with it. And very often people are humbled by them reaching out to me to, to, to speak to me about this. Mm. And um, it's, it, it's, it's been something that's been very positive for me to actually possibly maybe be a help just, you know, talking through things. And that's been a, a benefit and a bonus that I never anticipated. I think though, like, I think, you know, sort of going back to a conversation we had in the lead up to recording this, and I think you said something ridiculous, like, well, what what have I got to say that's interesting or something or something about, I don't know, you were being, you know, h humble. Um, but I think that for me, I think, first of all, all the kind of obvious things about you are, are very cool and inspiring, you know, all the things that people know, that's in the the world you know the rcbs present blah 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 you know obviously you've you've battled with an illness and and overcome that advert you know that 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 challenge but i think what's always most interesting maybe interesting is the wrong word but inspiring about people's stories is actually there's so much more going on than what you see at the facade of it or whatever you would call that you know it's the fact that yes i was doing all this stuff but yeah. actually I was also loading my wheelchair or my, my power chair into the back of the car at three o'clock in the morning thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> then, you know, dealing with all yeah. of this other family stuff that's just madness. Um, and you say that, you know, we're all dealing with stuff. We're not all dealing with that simultaneously. That's quite a lot, <laughs> I would say. But, but, but a, a lot of people are dealing with a lot of stuff. That's the thing. And I think and I think that goes back to this. I mean, I know it, it sounds a bit cliched, but it absolutely isn't this business about being kind. You do not know anybody anybody's battles. Um, you know what what they're doing, and and, and Scott, you'll you'll have absolutely your own challenges too. Um, so everybody has these challenges, and I think we all have to be as supportive as we can, and just mindful of everyone i think no you're i think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head 100 100 and we say it all the time and like you said it, but i don't think it's cliched actually there's nothing cliched about it because they're i think you've just i don't think so either. you've given us the perfect example of of that because again going back to the way that that i've perceived you know you're you're talking about this you know your power is that a power, did I say power chair is that what you call it's it it's a power chair yeah growing to the... um and and actually you made that look that was almost like I don't know you made that look a kind of no I don't want to say fun but it was almost 
you know, here I am powering down Whitehall in my power chair, you know, and mm. and I don't know. So I would never have imagined you then bundling it into the back here. <laughs> yeah. the no. So you did a very and good job of that. Yeah. You, know, you did a very good job. And obviously the people that stand around the car at the time couldn't imagine me doing that either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm surprised at three o'clock in the morning in Glasgow you weren't getting it nicked by someone. But anyway, <laughs> well, do you know it's it's do you know it's funny actually. I mean, this is this is a total by the way. You know, I used, I did come home in the train at night sometimes, wonder if my car would still be there. And <laughs> and you know there was there was one time I actually had parked in Cambridge Street and the ones came arrived and and it was gone. And I thought, oh no! And this was like one o'clock in the morning. I thought I'm going to have to phone the police. An actual fact, obviously, I parked in a disabled space in Cambridge Street. And then I looked across the road, and it was there on the other side, pointing the other way. And, of course, when I told my kids this, they said, I'd write, that's, did, did you not leave it there? But what actually happened, because it was a disabled space, um, the council were doing work around it. So they got someone to lift that car, move it to the other side of the road, and do the, and do the work. I, I, you know, and when I, so when I arrived there, it was moved. That really freaked me out. I think the, the council were like, what are we going to do to just absolutely tip him over the edge and mess with his head completely? I know, I know. <laughs> they really did. Your kids are like, you're just going nuts. And they're like, no, no, we actually craned it over the other side of the road. No, they actually did. And it wasn't it wasn't a small car. It's got to be a reasonable size to get the flaming power chair, <laughs> which weighs like 150 kilograms. It was, a, I think at that point, it was a Honda CRV. They just lifted it. And moved it to the side of the road. You, you can just do that. It's fine. I was, I was freaked. I was freaked out. Fair enough. Um, so I wanted a couple of questions that we ask. Um, we like to ask everyone, and um, I wanted to ask you. So you are an inspiration, as much as you maybe don't like to hear that. That's true. That's very kind. Of <laughs> um, so I wonder if you can tell us who inspires you. Right. Uh, so that's a that's a tough one. Who inspires me? Well, do you know, and as and I've said this before, but I, I absolutely will repeat it again. A vet resurgence, obviously, and I, I can see this now as an observer because I'm actually ill health retired. A vet resurgence working in all these tough jobs, general practice, small and large animal, government, pathology, university, mm-hmm. all hard work. I'm in awe of them. And they, they, I, I'm constantly inspired by that. And are you looking for individuals? Well, we, no. we've we've had individuals named. I don't feel like you have to, but we have we have had individuals. Okay, well, just off. This is off my top of my head, and it's mm. not not. And you know, there'll, there'll be others, and I'll I'll kick myself on me. I guess I'm thinking. Obviously, I, I find Lizzie Lizzie Locker, RCVS CEO, an absolute inspiration. Mm-hmm. In fact. Pre- and for RCVS presidents, I'm thinking Stuart Reid, Chris mm-hmm. Tufnell, Amanda Bogue, mm-hmm. they inspired me. And obviously just Mandisa, which oh, she's doing yeah. now. And the, you know, you get your BVA folk as well, people like Robin Hargreaves, I find an inspiration, very mm-hmm. wise person. Mm-hmm. And and Daniela, Daniela Dos Santos, our yes. previous, our just recent BVA president, is has been an absolute um, honor to work with mm-hmm. and i'm going to say ebony escalona oh, of yeah. the vet, vets stay go diversify fame i think she's an absolute um inspiration so yeah so just, just, there's so so many good people and yeah. it's 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 quite a profession and we've got some amazing people it's true it really is true and i think so just to to, to finish off and um 
we always kind of uh, like to ask also, and again, it's hard to narrow these things down to one thing, but but we, we want to know, I suppose, if, if for those that are listening, maybe even those sort of younger vets or, or you know, vet students even, what advice would you be giving to the younger folk in our profession? Maybe something that you've then had the opportunity to learn as you've gone through your uh, career. Okay. Well, I would I would repeat that. I would try not to take things too seriously. Um, and, I, and I would honestly urge them to realize they are, they're never alone. Um, they should, and they should always seek support um, to, and, and, and get, get advice, even get a mentor. Um, so, and pay attention to their hobbies and their interests. Don't let that fall away. And value friendships, speak to people, and speak to people at conferences and meetings. Never think, even if you're shy, because I know that that they kind of formally call that networking. But it, never mind networking. Just just actually talking to people, because I think that's really helpful. It's helpful at the time, and it also can be helpful later on as well. Um, so I, th- I think that that's that's really important. And obviously, that for the new graduates just now, this the vet GDP program that's coming out, the, the veterinary graduate program is going to be amazing because the new graduates will be getting mentored. And at the moment, the last count, I believe we've had 1500 mentors signed up. Wow. So the profession is really stepping up mm-hmm. to, to support our new graduates, which I yeah. think is really positive. No, that's really, and really positive and very, very uh, important kind of uh, change and in initiative. I think that's gonna, that's going to have a really um, positive effect for sure. And then lastly, I think I know the answer, but you know, we never second guess. So, would you do all this again? Just the way, just the way that it all turned out. Um, I it's been an absolute blast, and um, absolutely. And the mad thing is, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I was at school. Someone suggested it. Um, so that was really weird. And a, a friend, another veterinary surgeon there, Ronnie Souter, was asked this, what, what, what would he do if, if he hadn't done veterinary? And he said he, he wanted to be a Dalek. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty good answer. Is that is that your answer? <laughs> I'm halfway there anyway. <laughs> we just have to say at this stage that our podcast and our, our clinical segment this week has been sponsored by uh, Zoetis. And the clinical chat today is intended for members of the veterinary profession. So by continuing to listen, you confirm that this applies to you. Right, so we've got Sophie back um, for our clinic clinical segment today, which we're really excited about. So hello again. Hiya. Hi. The last time we were speaking with you and Tori, um, and we kind of had this really well, quite a long conversation it ended up being about um, lots of things, but our kind of dermatology focus was really about the sort of approach to the dermatology patient and, and lots of kind of useful things. One of my sort of big, my big take home messages definitely was surrounding time. So first of all, we just need more mm-hmm. of it. But second of all, how do we kind of, you know, um, get the time we need for these cases and they really do deserve that kind of time. What we're going to co- kind of focus on today, which I, I suppose plays into that a little bit, is to do with communication. And, and I, 
communication generally in the consult, which is obviously key, but also um, with that kind of dermatology focus. So I suppose the big question then has to be why communication skills are so important for vets working in general practice generally. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, such a, a, a big but important question here. So I think our communication skills are are really quite fundamental, even in just day-to-day life, generally leaving our, our career and our profession to one side. But we do rely heavily on, our, on, on good communication skills, effective communication skills as part of our profession. And, and it really helps build that, that client bond, that, that, that client relationship, that pet owner relationship. It's really important. Um, I think also when we think about day to day, we are communicating all the time, you know, whether it's colleague to colleague, peer to peer, um, veterinary professional to, to pet owner. So actually having good and effective communication skills become really very important. The reason I got interested in, in communication skills, and I'm by no means an expert at all, um, was actually a couple of years ago, I, I looked at my CPD record card and understandably and, and rightly so it was really focused on clinical skills and improving my clinical skills in a variety of different disease areas and there was not anything on communication skills and I thought that was actually quite interesting because actually it's, it's an important part of my job and why wouldn't I want to improve on those and I think that when I'm working in a practice environment I, I like to think that my communication skills are are pretty good but I'm always on the lookout to see maybe there's some blind spots I'm not aware of what I'm doing or how can I make some slight tweaks to improve on those communication skills so actually yeah if there's an opportunity to do perhaps for me a little bit more in the way of some CPD on that I think it would be really helpful yeah. and useful. I think that's really useful though or sort of interesting in itself because you know I think we some people I think are naturally better communicators than others and that's not a criticism we're all different you know so I think some Mm -hmm. people have a kind of more natural communication style maybe but I think that's really insightful the fact that if if why not do CPD on these sorts of things why do we we're so focused on clinical CPD like you say but if we feel that we need to there's so many other areas non-clinical parts of our job that we should actually are, are, like you say, just as important. Because it makes me think of quite, this is a slightly funny sort of twist on, you know, on the way things are, but there are definitely some vets, you know, who get away with a, a lot because actually they've just got good, that really good rapport with clients. You know, some of these, I don't want to be too generalist, but there are some vets who literally are, they're brilliant vets, but the, the the thing that makes them actually really brilliant is the fact that people like them and get on with them. And, you know, and, 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 mm-hmm. and I don't want to say they get away with a lot, but they might do a wee bit because their communication is so good. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think what you said there is, is really important as well. I think that every, every single one of us will have our own individual style and you have to be your authentic self in, in a consultation or, you know, within the four walls of the practice. However, it's important to look at the things I'm currently doing, uh, what is working, what works well, what resonates really well with either colleagues or pet owners, and actually what are some of the things that perhaps I wasn't even aware of that I'm doing that I maybe need to, to take a look at and, and, and tweak. 
I keep using the word tweak or modify because you can't change who you fundamentally are, you know. Um, but you can certainly look at actually, is there things I could do better? And certainly when, especially when I was doing as a, as a student, when I was doing EMS, you would see different vets and how they were with, with pet owners. And you would, you would see how some vets have this very just natural rapport. Um, and then other vets have other styles as well, which is absolutely fine. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really important part, uh, of our day-to-day lives in practice and it's worth a bit of attention, I think. No, I think you're right. So why, so bringing it back to the context of dermatology, why then is it even more important with the dermatology consultation? Mm. So, well, first of all, dermatology, when we were talking about the workup process, uh, we mentioned about the fact that it's a very common presentation um, so some of the, the, the stats we use around that is about one in four of our non-routine dog consults will be a dermatology-related case, and 40% of those consults will be pruritus-related. So we're going to be seeing dermatology cases every single day, multiple times through the day. Um, and also, there is some complexities with it as well. I think in, in dermatology consults, it really does put our communication skills to the ultimate test. Um, so not only navigating the, the pet and the pet owner to the, the, the workup itself, but also if we then make a diagnosis, for example, atopic dermatitis to exclusion, we then have that whole management piece, that long-term, lifelong management. And again, we will be seeing this pet owner on a regular basis, perhaps on a frequent basis as well. And again, it's about building that, that good relationship going forward. Because I think that actually when it comes to any sort of chronic disease, I guess, that working in partnership with a pet owner is actually really important. And when we look at it from the pet owner side, they also express how important that is that they feel that you're both working together for the, the best interests of their pet, which is what we do anyway. But even more so when, it, when you're suffering, when a patient's suffering from a chronic disease, I think it becomes even more important. So tell me, that, and I'm absolutely in the dark about this, t- talk me through the roller coaster <laughs> the itch roller coaster <laughs> i was so johnny's um sent me this and i have never seen that before so do you want to talk me through what that roller coaster is yeah so it's um so basically when we think about the the dermatology console itself um and again if we think about this from the the, the pet owner perspective um if we it's really about placing yourself in the shoes of the pet owner. Um, so if we take an example of, let's say, a first-time presenter, this is the first time that the pet owner's coming in with their itchy dog or, or cat to see us in the practice. And actually, as a clinician thinking about, well, how could that owner be feeling? What could they be thinking as they're waiting uh, in the waiting room to see us? Um, so as a first-time presenter, possibly they could be feeling some concern or worry um they also might be feeling hopeful that we can address the problem and and, and fix it um if we then think about an owner that's a repeat presenter so this, this is a patient that has ongoing paritis that is recurring and has come back to see us for the 10th time they also might be feeling similar worry concern but they also might start to be feeling maybe a level of frustration you know that they're coming back again for the further consultation um, and also we may have occasions where we have second opinion cases 
So we've all been in the situation where we may have been, we may have a consultation which is a second opinion um, from another practice, perhaps. And again, that that pet owner might be thinking, feeling a certain way. So it's about actually stepping into the shoes of the owner to to understand how they could be thinking or feeling, and also looking out for that in the consultation itself. So when you're having the discussion. Can you can you get a sense of how that pet owner may be feeling in that conversation, either through the, the tone of their voice or their body language in the consult? And how do I structure the consult to kind of acknowledge that as well or give them the platform to share how they, they're feeling? I always ask, you know, I, and again, I'm not proclaiming to be an expert in communication at all, but I think one of the things that I always say to any, you know, students or residents or interns that I'm mentoring is that I always, always ask the owners what they think, what they, f- and and I always, I always usually end my consultation by asking them what they're most worried about, what worries them the most, you know, so, and actually that, that can be because they're, people are burdened with worries that are sometimes, you know, that, 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 that you can sort of help alleviate, you know, almost instantly. So I think, Asking them their perspective on the whole thing is actually really, really, I think, really important. So what would be your top tips then for kind of particularly maybe in those more um, sort of rocky moments? Um, what are your top tips for um, um, that kind of are approaching or, or, or improving um, that communication with um, with owners? Yeah. Um, so you said something there that I think is really important is, first of all, getting the owner's perspective and asking them about that. I think that's hugely important. Um, And when we talk about communication, what's really interesting is that, I mean, for me personally, I used to think that it was all about the words I was using, about the words I was choosing. I need to speak the language that the pet owner can grasp and and, and understand. But also another part of it is the the tone that I'm using. Um, So, yeah, if we think about the, the tone or how I deliver the message, it might be the speed at which I'm talking. It might be the volume at which I'm talking at. So there's all of those other elements that's important. Um, and also the body language I'm using as well. So being kind of open with the body language and, um, and giving the pet owner eye contact as you're speaking. Um, and, and that also is important for me to gauge from the pet owner's perspective, see what I'm getting back in, in all of those domains and those components that I spoke about before. Um, I also think as well that the way that we question the pet owner is, is important. So, um, you know, some of the papers that have been done looked at the, 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 the value and the power of the open question and, and allowing the owner to share what's going on and not only the question, but letting the pet owner answer. Do not interrupt the pet owner. Let them finish what they're saying. Yeah, because I, I think the data was really interesting because actually it it really, in order to get the best information out of the owner, you had to let them speak. I think it was about a minute and a half or even longer or something initially, you know, so, and most vets will be in within about 10 <laughs> seconds interrupting to get, you know, but actually you really do need to let them talk, you know, and sometimes... I, I, I absolutely, I totally and utterly agree that that's the best way to kind of optimise getting the best information. One of the things that I think is going to be a frustration to people, apart from the fact that their dog maybe is still itchy, is that they are maybe becoming frustrated because they're coming back again 
and again and again and the dog is still itchy and then actually i was thinking there when we when we've been talking to your colleagues um across these podcasts what's really struck me is the fact that there's so many options now for the itchy patient from a drug point of view um, and I think it's a, it's it's amazing how drugs have kind of developed. It's so exciting to see the different options we've got, the different kind of mechanisms of action. It's really interesting stuff. But we're potentially talking about a variety of drugs that are that will cost a variety, you know, a, a vary, varying amounts of money. Um, and 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 what I suppose my point being is. Back in the good old days, you, you'd get sent away with a month's worth of steroids, which is as cheap as chips. So how are we navigating that? The frustration of the re- the repeat offender, but also potentially drugs that are brilliant in their own way, but they're not £15.99 for 30 okay. days worth of whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'll split that down into the, the, the two components there. So the repeat offender... Um, we mentioned it on the workup podcast about the importance of, of managing client expectations. So if this patient is an atopic patient, for example, yes, you know, we will try and find the management plan that, that works uh, as effectively as possible for that patient. Also acknowledging that this, this pet is going to now and again have a flare and, and, and making sure the pet owner understands that because we have to remember whenever we make the diagnosis, let's again just talk about atopic dermatitis for a second. When we make that diagnosis, that there's a lot of information to share about the actual disease itself. There's a lot going on. And I don't know as the clinician that's sharing information what bits the owner is remembering. So I might stress to the, the pet owner that this is a lifelong incurable condition that we'll have to, to manage ongoing. And I'm saying all these other things as well about the, you know, potentially the defective skin barrier or there's the, you know, immune, the immune system is going haywire, as an example. Um, and they may actually go away. And I think just remember a very obscure thing that I said as part of the discussion, not remember that it's lifelong and curable um, and that we're going to get flares happening here and there. So that's one thing. But then also going back and if, if we keep getting a pet coming back in with pruritus, just actually making sure that we're addressing the right cause of crisis. So again, that links back to the workup. There is no shame in going back to the beginning of the workup, even if we're months down the line and explaining to the pet owner why it is that we need to go back and actually review what we're doing. Because if I've missed that infection, whatever I'm prescribing, if it's, if it's the likes of Ocosisnib or Lokivetmab, it's not going to deal with that infection. And that's going to lead to further disappointment for the pet owner. Um, so, that that's kind of the one section about helping to deal with that frustration and, and making sure the owner is aware of what you're doing and why and that they're on board with it as well, that you get their informed consent uh, and they're part of that decision making as well. Because I think if we direct pet owners um, and don't actually work with them on it, then that often leads to that situation occurring. Um, in terms of the, the, the all the tools in the toolbox, uh, I completely agree. I think that once upon a time, uh, we didn't have many. Like you said, patients went away with a course of corticosteroids and, and that was about it, give or take a few others. And I think it's such a good place to be in right now that we have got so many different options to choose from. And I think that really helps us tailor 
the, the treatment program for that individual pet. And it's, it's actually really nice to be able to speak uh, to the pet owner about what we can do now. These are the options. I think when it comes, you mentioned the cost side of things, absolutely every treatment that we, we have to offer in the dermatology arena will cost a different amount. And there will definitely be pet owners that are driven solely by cost. But that is the thing that, that determines their decision-making end of. But we also need to think about the values that pet owners have as well. So different pet owners will have different values. Um, so some pet owners may actually not care about the cost. All they want to do is have a treatment that works for their pet that they believe to be safe in their own way um, and that they don't have to you know, worry about giving every single day as an example of the top of my head. So in that short amount of time that you have in a consultation, it's very difficult to figure out what, what an individual pet owner truly values. So I have to give them all the options, really, and, and Absolutely. let them make an informed decision. But I also have to give them some guidance. I can't just give them a menu and say, take your pick, choose whatever you like. Mm -hmm. You've got to kind of give them some information about each one so that they can mm -hmm, mm -hmm. make the choice they feel is best for their pet and for them. No, I think that's so, it's so true. And actually, I think we, we've, we touched on this in another, in another episode, actually. It's absolutely not our responsibility to be making presumptions about the owner's ability to pay for x y and z it's, that is not our job as you said our job is to present owners with all of the options and actually i'm working with a vet just now at, at, at glasgow vet school um one of the senior medicine clinicians who's so brilliant about that because the residents and the interns will often be like you know, we'll be talking about a case before it's even turned up in the building and they'll be like, oh, well, I think, you know, well, I w that, w that won't be possible because of cost concerns. And she'll shut them down and be like, how do you, you've not even given them the options yet. How can you do not make any presumptions about any person based on anything? They, like you said, this, this tailored approach or this these, these tailored solutions that are to do with so many different elements, to do with, is it once a day or is it once a month or is it once a year? Because if I only have to do it once a year, although I don't think that exists, if I only have to do it once a year, then I'll do that mm -hmm. one because I'll forget, you know, or, you know, once a day versus twice a day or with food, without food, mm -hmm. or, you know, there's so many different things. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so many different scenarios. So that I think you're absolutely right. What a wonderfully strong position we're in. We've got all these amazing drugs with all these sort of potential um you know and different sort of therapeutic options. Let's let's present them all and then come up with the best option together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, definitely. I think that's that's absolutely you put the nail on the head. And I mean if I use an analogy, you know, on a previous podcast you mentioned about yours and Andy's obsession I think it was more Andy's obsession with coffee is that right that you were yeah, obsessed that's right yeah so yeah. you you might go out and, and purchase yourself this fantastic amazing coffee machine that makes a fantastic mm -hmm. cappuccino a wonderful latte on a mean espresso ace I'll be like right you've just spent however much money on that and I've got a kettle and a, a you know and a pot of whatever brand of coffee you want to use that's perfectly adequate for me, but that's your value. Mm -hmm. You love a good cup of coffee and you're willing to, to invest in that piece of kit to make yourself a good, good coffee. <laughs> I can I'm tell you that not a, not a single <laughs> cup of instant coffee has passed my lips 
for the last 10 years I can tell you that for night so. oh well um yeah I mean if you come around my house you're gonna get a you know a, a instant coffee finest I tell you um <laughs> No, it's a really good example. And I think that the point is so important is about the fact that we have, uh, and this is the, the interesting thing about veterinary medicine now, it, I, I do, you know, new graduates have got a much tougher time um, potentially than they did 20 years ago, because actually one of the things that's most sort of overwhelming is the fact there's so many different things we can do, you know. So it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Because you you have to <laughs> you have to remember them all. But I suppose this is the whole idea of us kind of um you know being able to to communicate um I suppose a bit of CPD in all these different ways and different platforms because it's trying to to make things sort of you know digestible and, and easier for the the busy clinician as well so as far as your kind of um you know we always love to come back to kind of top tips so I think what would be from that kind of um Overall, from that dermatology consultation journey roller coaster point of view, what would you say your kind of your take home messages are regarding what we've kind of spoken about today? Yeah, so I, I, we mentioned before about the questioning and also the listening, and um, you, you mentioned about the the fact that you felt that vet interrupt clients within 10 seconds it's actually you're all you're on the money with that it's 15 seconds oh, right, actually okay. um oh, so that was right. found in, in, in a paper um we're not alone medics do it as well so we're, we're not we're not the only guilty party here so questioning and listening active listening is really really important i also would say from some of the the, the papers i've read on this is that em- the expression of empathy actually is really important too um so <laughs> one one paper that was really interesting. So it was about who we direct our empathy to, because I know in a consult I've been really guilty of directing my empathy to the pet that is in the consult room or on the table. And actually, pet owners appreciate that, but actually they would prefer that you direct your empathy to the to them, so that actually they feel that yeah that that expression actually leads to more in the way of client satisfaction, which I thought was a really fascinating. Uh, observation and finding in in the paper that I read on that um, and also as I mentioned at the beginning also another thing is that owners want to to trust their vet they want to have that that trust and working partnership with their vet so as I said making use of the fact that um, we have got so many tools as I said in the toolbox that we can offer these pet owners um, you mentioned about the time pressures um, so one thing that's perhaps worth thinking of is, as I said, there's a lot of information to share in that dermatology consult and sometimes breaking it down um, is, is really important. So giving the pet owner some literature away with them to have a read and, and get their head around the, the diagnosis that you've made, booking an appointment back in to go through, right, the treatment options, let's discuss some and give that some time as well. Um, yeah, I think that's also important because, like you said, there's 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 a lot now that we can do, a lot of options to choose from. So actually spending some time to go through that with the pet owner so that they feel that they've got all the information they need to make a decision. And I think actually one thing just for me that stuck out that you sort of mentioned earlier on is actually I also think just being authentic. We're all different, but I think authenticity shows. And I certainly think that people regardless of what your personality is like or whether you're 
bubbly or a little bit more solemn or whatever, if you're authentic, then that comes through. And that actually is for me a, a real bonus when you, you know, you don't have to be, you know, jazz hands all the time, but just be authentic. And I think it's true though. Do you know what I mean? Like not everyone's putting on a song and a dance, but as long as you're coming across in, in a real way, then I think that's also really important. Absolutely. I think, yeah, you've got, you've got to be yourself. And we, we mentioned at the beginning that everyone, everyone has their own individual style. Uh, I might do things very, very differently to, to yourself, to the, to the next event. And that's absolutely, yeah, great. You know, we're all very, very different. Um, again, it's just looking at, is there things that I'm uh, doing or perhaps not doing that I could start doing that I could maybe tweak and, and do a little bit better. Um, and it's about actually the, the importance that that holds for that pet owner journey with you and their pets, but also your own satisfaction as well. I feel like, if I feel like I've done a good job, it just, it makes me feel so much better. Um, and yeah, communication has, has a role to play in that. Uh, I always used to say when I'm speaking to my, my friends uh, who are also veterinary colleagues and when I used to say, say to them that the most favorite place for me in, in, in the practice was the consult room. I absolutely loved being in the consult room and speaking to, to pet owners and speaking with pet owners. Um, and I also find it really interesting because every owner will be different as well different owners will want different things from you so just off the top of my head some owners will want really science they want the detail they want you to go into the, the granular detail and things and then there's other owners that just want a top line just give me top line brief to the point so yeah i think i think it's something that fascinates me and i think it's it's such an important part as i said about the what we do day in day out in the practice I just want to say a massive thank you again to Neil uh, for the amazing conversation today and also a big thank you to Sophie for her really insightful uh, chat on the derm uh, consultation. I want to thank you all for listening as always. Your support is massively appreciated. For more information about VTX and what we do, please head over to our website at www.vtx-cpd.com. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.